This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, let's talk a little bit about retail because we've got a lot of news. You've got the U.S. supermarket chain Kroger licensing Okada Group's home delivery technology. Kroger taking a 5% stake in that U.K. grocer. Uh, and you've also got the world's biggest retailer reporting some first quarter results that were a little bit mixed. Let's get a wrap up. Joe Feldman, Senior Managing Director, Retail Analyst at Telzi Advisory Group. Love talking to Joe. Knows so much when it comes uh, to retail. And you've got a historical perspective. Joe joining us on the phone in New York. Hey, before we talk, Joe, about Walmart and before we talk about Kroger, you know, I'm just thinking about coming off of President Trump, talking about the U.S.-Chinese relationship, talking about trade. You know, American companies, American consumers have benefited dramatically, especially when you think about retail and all the stuff that's been made cheaply over in China. You know, when you look at what's going on, what do we need to remember uh, kind of more broadly about this relationship and the importance of this relationship, especially how it pertains to retail? Well, I think from the retail perspective, I mean, you really want to have good relationship with China and, um, you know, to be able to have good sourcing relationships to bring in uh, product at a low cost to really provide it that lower cost on to the, uh, to the American consumer. So to the extent that, you know, while bringing jobs back here may make sense, um, you still need to have low-cost products to you know, support consumer spending as well. Uh, what's interesting is that some of the companies that have been, you know, I've heard contemplating bringing back more production here in the U.S., they're also talking about automating it. Yeah. So while there may be more production here, it may not mean more jobs. It may just mean more automation here in the U.S. The goal is to keep prices low for the consumer. A lot of uh, retailers have also shifted to other parts of uh, Asia to, uh, for their sourcing needs. Right. China's been outsourcing <laughs> to other countries. Hey, um, talk to us about Walmart, some disappointment by investors. What's keen uh, that we should uh, pay attention to about the, what their latest results? Well, I, I think, look, one of the big things people were worried about was the e-commerce side of the business, which was up 23% in the fourth quarter, and that was a big disappointment. People wanted to see it much higher than that. They, Walmart said it was going to be higher this quarter. I think a lot of people were thinking it would come out around 27 28%, and in, it actually came out up 33% this past quarter. So they really had a very strong showing there and a, a bit of a rebound, which was really encouraging to see. Uh, so their efforts with online uh, grocery and pickup at the store and faster delivery are really starting to help. I think that's a big part of it. The other thing is their sales trend was pretty solid. They did a 2.1% uh, comp in the U.S., or same-store sales, I should say, mm-hmm. and it was impacted seasonally, as has every other retailer been, because of the bo- poor weather in April. And they talked about the fact that it, it's rebounded back up to probably around that 2.5% rate going forward. Right. That's another key. Good. Um, hey, listen, Kroger, yeah. Ocado, uh got 30 seconds left here. What do I need to know about that? 
Uh, it's actually a pretty good deal for Kroger. I think it's really intelligent of them to find uh, really one of the, the better operators in the U.K. as far as uh, grocery delivery goes and bring some of that technology here by partnering with them and making it exclusive to uh, them in the U.S. What I kind of love is everybody's getting shook up, if you will, disrupted, and they're changing their business models but moving fast. Joe Feldman, you're the best. Senior Managing Director, Retail Analyst at Telsey Advisor Group. And I'm proud to be an American. So create an ETF, slap the ticker MAG on it, as in Make America Great Again, and you might get an idea of what kinds of companies make up this specific fund. Let's get the details from our Rachel Evans. She's cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. This is truly a Make America Great Again ETF. It truly is. This is a fund that owns companies that donate to the Republican Party. So what this fund has done is that they've gone into the Federal Election Commission records, which obviously record all donations over $200. It's looked at who the employers are of these donators, and then it basically has gone out and bought the companies that donate more to Republicans than to Democrats. What about financials? What about performance? What about if it's a good company? Right. So this is to very invest much, in. Well, right. This is kind of like very much a, a sort of uh, conservative play on ESG. Now, ESG has obviously been kind of all about environmental, social, and governance values. Right. So that's been about kind of avoiding things like uh, oil producers or tobacco growers, those kind of companies. But ESG investors and ES, those folks who invest other people's money in ESG, they still look usually for performance as well. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one component of, of those funds. But, you know, typically they'll follow an index that, that kind of prioritizes the, a value values um, above kind of something like performance. And then they'll try and find performance in other ways by, for example, investing in sort of solar panel companies that they think are going to grow really well. But do, does this fund care about performance? So it doesn't look at performance, no. And what's, but what's quite interesting is if you kind of look at how it's been doing, mm. it's actually pretty much on a par with the S&P um, since its inception. So it started trading last September. It's now uh, gained about 12%. The S&P is actually slightly lower than that if you look at today's uh, today's performance. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of kind of uh, how it's been doing, it's it's been keeping reasonably good pace with the wider market. All right. Who's the individual behind this? So this is a guy called Hal Lambert, and he's based down in uh, Fort Worth. Um, so he runs a, a company called Point Bridge Capital and has a, a long history um, both with investing people's money, but also with the Republican Party. So he's been involved in a, a couple of different... Um, bids for president by Texans, Ted Cruz, and by Rick Perry back in the day. Um, so now he is kind of throwing his lot in with the, the MAGA slogan and is kind of uh, marketing this fund to people that want to, to get a bit more of, of Trump uh, in their investments. You tell an interesting story in your in your reporting and your story about um, back in April 2016 and his thinkings about the Target Corporation specifically. Right. So this was kind of how the idea for this fund came into being. Uh, Lambert was kind of uh, watching the, the morning news and he saw kind of Target Corps' announcement about uh, letting uh, transgender people choose which fitting room or which bathroom they wanted to use. Now he kind of like looked at that from a conservative perspective and saw the prospect of boycotts and thought well it's going to be bad for Target's stock. So he opted to sell out of the stock and started kind of thinking about how he might kind of take that sort of uh, on the ground boycotting and protest into something that was investable. Target's up 16% this year. 
But he's not in Target. Right. It's been a better year for Target, I think, this year than it was last. So he started this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but last September? Yeah, last September he started this fund. What kind of money has he attracted? So it's still a relatively small fund for, for the ETF world. It's at about $39 million. So obviously that's way below something like, you know, SPY, which has got $250 billion, But that is, is the biggest fund out there. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's done okay considering it's sort of going for the first kind of like six to, to nine months so far. Um, what will be interesting to see kind of like how it does going forward from that he's been hitting up some interesting places for capital i i what like what well so he's been going on uh sort of right-wing um radio uh, shows and sort of advertising with them but also appearing as a guest he's going along to conservative uh, conferences so things like the heritage foundation there's a, a conference called freedom fest that's in, in las vegas uh, this summer that he's going to be sponsoring so he's kind of trying uh sort of not looking necessarily at advisors or kind of to the investment world per se for money he's actually looking to kind of the conservative world to see if they have some money they'd like to put to work. You know, it's funny when I looked at this story, and you've already talked about this ESG investing, because we've done a lot about it. And we do think it's often, you know, solar, clean energy. Right. And it is that too. But right, there are different derivatives of it, right? And this is kind of what we're seeing. And who knows what else might come down the road in terms of, you know, people's you know, versions of ESG. Totally. And I think that's a, it's a really good point because, you know, political investing is something yeah. that's kind of pretty new. Um, it's an interesting concept, you know, whether the, the stock market can be split into Republican or Democrat companies. Um, but and it, what's yeah. interesting is the market often, we typically or have sometimes thought in the past that the market's only going to do well when there's a Republican in the House because they're pro-business and so on and so forth. But we've seen Wall Street do really well under a Democrat regime. Right. I think there's a lot of danger to be found in, in politicians taking credit one way or another for how, how a stock market does or how our economy does it's, to be honest like you know, it does seem to kind of like keep rolling along regardless of um, you know some, some political things though you could argue I guess that some of the tax cut stuff has, has benefited companies bottom line at least in the short term. Anybody else doing this? So we, there are or a few similar, sort of yeah. um, similar-ish ideas out there with biblically responsible ETFs so they do a kind of similar thing in that they, they are typically quite conservative in how they invest but given that they're kind of going with a, a different an overarching um, sort of values proposition, they are potentially avoiding weapons manufacturers, for example, which this sort of fund um, that, that Lambert's running wouldn't do. Um, but this actually seems to be the only kind of like truly political, um, as in, you know, actually buying companies that donate to a, a Republicans um, kind of ETF out there at the moment. And industrials, financials, energy, those are the three biggest group in this ETF. That's right. Yeah, very, very low on IT, only um, 0.6% in there. So if you think about what some of the tech companies and how they kind of like use their money. It's clearly not going into the Republican Party coffers. It's a great story. Thank you so much for bringing it Thank to us. Thank you for having me. Rachel Evans, cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Score another one for National Amusements and CBS top shareholder Sherry Redstone as they win a round in court in a push to uh, merge CBS with Viacom, also controlled by National Amusements or NIA, as we like to call it. Yep, we need an org chart for this. Let's get into it, though, with uh, Matthew Schettenhelm. He is media litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He is with us from our bureau in Washington, D.C., and, of course, our Nabila Ahmed. She's media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Hey, Nabila, let's kick it off with you. Oh, my God, it's getting complicated. <laughs> um, but score one for Sherry Redstone. Exactly. Look, it's a classic power struggle, and she has come out on top today, but this is by no means the end, this will probably drag on for weeks and maybe months. What I don't understand is Les Moonves, who runs CBS, has done a damn good job at doing so. Why does she want to kind of, I feel like, alienate him? 
Well, what does she, she am I missing something? Well, listen, so what she's been saying is that she would like both of the companies to decide whether they should merge or not. So she came out in February and said, hey, guys, think you should probably merge because both of you need scale. Can you guys figure out whether you should or not? So both companies have appointed a special committees of independent directors right. who have been looking at this merger and whether it makes sense. My understanding is that they did come to some kind of agreement on price. They have an understanding on price, but what they couldn't resolve with social issues. So Lesmond Evans wants to be the CEO. She says, that's fine. Great. Do you do that? But for your number two, I would like the Viacom CEO, Bob Backish, to be the number two. Les said, no, I want my current number two to be the number two. And she eventually gave on that as well and said, okay, well, why doesn't Bob just go on the board? And Les said, no, I don't want that either. So, and this is the problem. I mean, she's been saying that Les has already said he's indicated that he's probably going to be around for two more years and then he'll step down. Right, so she's like, okay, what's what is the succession plan? And I want, I would like Bob to be around for that. I like my guy. Okay, yeah, that's why we have you because you explain it all specifically. Hey, Matt, come on in on this on the legal side. As Nabila said, this could go on for a few more weeks. What should we anticipate on the legal side of things? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. All all that's been decided so far is sort of the the very preliminary stuff. Uh, the the CBS was was seeking a temporary restraining order the, this this morning. The court said no to that. I think we could see the next step in this litigation come very soon, uh, as soon as this afternoon when when CBS is, spe- is scheduled to hold a, a special uh, committee vote to dilute uh, Sherry Redstone and National Amusement's controlling interest in the company. I suspect uh, that's immediately going to trigger litigation because there's going to be a fight about uh, exactly how that vote plays out after uh, Redstone and, and NAI adopted a change to the bylaws yesterday. All of that's going to need to be litigated. They're going to really dig down into the charter provisions itself that's, that, that, that ask, can, can the company, CBS, dilute its controlling shareholders' interest as it believes it can? I was thinking about when I've been reading through these stories is also it really kind of begs the question about, okay, what does a controlling shareholder really mean legally? Um, or, you know, so I'm curious about that, Matt. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the, I was at the hearing yesterday yeah. in, in Wilmington, and the judge was really struggling with this. This is sort of a fundamental corporate law 101 question that really hasn't been tested all that often. Right. But but there are, there are good arguments on both sides that one, okay, a controlling shareholder normally gets to call the shots. At the same time, the, the, the directors of the company also have a duty to the other shareholders when they believe, as it's alleged here, that perhaps the controlling shareholder isn't acting in the interest of the larger corporation or, or, or in the interest of other shareholders. And so you get this, this sort of fundamental legal clash at the heart of this that makes for a really interesting uh, battle that I think is going to play out for, for weeks. Nabila, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think what it what is really interesting to me here is that depending on how the court rules on whether the controlling shareholder could be diluted or not, I mean this is the this is the kind of structure that's adopted by a lot of media companies right now. Technology companies, technology too. companies too. So yeah. you've got like Twenty First Century Fox, you've got Google, you've got Liberty, you've got Facebook. What will it mean for those sorts of companies if the judge says actually, yeah, you can dilute your controlling shareholder? 
Right. I wonder about the precedent that ultimately will be set. Um, Nabila, uh, I'm just curious, as everybody's watching this, are there any other media companies within the space that we should be watching, um, depending on how this plays out ultimately? Sure. Look, Leslie Moonves had wanted to sell CBS to somebody else. So he had courted Verizon. He had courted Lionsgate. Verizon came out this week and said that they're not interested in buying a linear content company. So probably won't be Verizon, but he would like to sell CBS to someone else. He understands that scale makes sense. He understands that CBS needs to do a deal. He just doesn't want to do it with Viacom. The problem's going to be, though, that the... NAI will probably have to bear a huge tax burden if they do agree to sell CBS or Viacom from under the, that structure. Okay. So I don't know how viable it is to be able to say, let's just sell CBS. Let me just ask you, Nabil, too. It sounds like, okay, that let's move this is being a little difficult. Yes. Let me play both sides here. I think these are very big egos. That we're dealing with in media here. companies. No, <laughs> that's the classic power struggle. But you know, he has done a good job. He's done a great job. And the other thing is that he's done a very good job of managing the talent as well. So you've got to wonder what yeah. happens to these people that he's hired that he manages. I was at the upfronts yesterday, and you had people like Stephen Colbert, etc. They're big didn't he get stars. like a standing ovation or something? Moonves did, yeah. yeah. And Colbert actually made a hilarious joke saying, you know come and have our cocktails. They won't be diluted. And uh, we've got a lot of great legal dramas this year on uh, CBS and we have some good shows as well. So, um, I love this. Um, Matt, I mean, so is there a timeline ticking? You guys both said that this may be a couple of weeks before this is this is resolved. Um, could it go on longer? Could it go to higher courts? What, you know, yeah. what else? Uh, yeah, I, I think we're looking at, at, at weeks and months as opposed to years here. I think this court t- typically acts pretty quickly. I think you could see appeals up to the Delaware Supreme Court um, in, in this. And uh, so it all remains to be seen. There's a lot of moving pieces here, especially after the decision today not to em- enter a restraining order. That that leaves it. Uh, that leaves Sherry Redstone and, and NAI with a lot of flexibility about how to strategize going forward. That will probably shape some of how the litigation plays out uh, going ahead. And is there some pressure too, Nabil? I think just for them to kind of get it done in terms of running those two businesses. Well, yeah, but this has been going on for two years now, at least this time around. Yes, because she tried to do this a couple of years ago. It didn't happen. They started talks again earlier this year. And now look look what's happening. I was also thinking as a shareholder, like, I feel like I'm whipsawed. I mean, the company's together. It gets, you know, broken apart. And now we're coming back together again. I mean, I don't get it. Is it? It's a bit like Ross and Rachel on Friends. <laughs> <laughs> we were on a break or whatever. What was that line? Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. And if you don't get that reference, I feel really sorry for you. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll certainly keep a watch on it. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, Nimbula, what are you hearing from your sources? Will it get done? Well, the the possibility of a deal getting done right now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> one of my sources said to me today, you're still talking about the deal. What? Forget the deal. <laughs> we were on a break. That's all I'm going to say. Um, you guys are great. Nabila, thank you so much. Nabila Ahmed, our media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter as well as Matt Chetnohelm. He's media litigation analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, from our bureau in the nation's capital. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Yeah. What if China decided to go it alone. 
Stop what you're doing right now and you want to listen to this story. It's about Chimerica. That's the very complicated, symbiotic, interdependent, and flawed relationship between China and the United States. Peter Coy is economics editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Joining me in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. This story is so important that it takes up the entire economic section of Bloomberg Businessweek uh, this week. It does. Yeah. Why is it so important? Chimerica. That's a word not everybody knows. Coined back in 2006 by the British historian Neil Ferguson and the German economist Moritz Schularik. And I talked to Schularik about this. Uh, he said, yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like an idea whose time had come. Right. The symbiotic relationship, as you said, between these two giants. And now it's changed. It was never the healthiest relationship in the first place. But now what we're seeing is that it, it actually benefited from the fact that China and America were so different, you know, a decade or so ago. But as China becomes more like the U.S. in the sense of trying to move up the value chain into high-tech products, and as it becomes more assertive military and economically, military and diplomatically, right. again, kind of like the U.S., the two countries are butting heads much more than they have before. Which is why – this conversation over ZTE, the Chinese yeah. telecom company, yeah. um, which buys a lot from U.S. companies, right? They buy a lot of crucial components from companies like Intel and Qualcomm to the point that when the U.S. imposed a penalty on ZTE saying it couldn't buy from American sources for seven years, it basically shut ZTE down. That's it. So if you're thinking – if you're Xi Jinping, the president of China, you're thinking – do I want to be in a position where my main geopolitical rival, the United States, can can basically put a death sentence on one of my national champions? And you know, obviously the answer is no. Right. Especially as China, as you and I have talked about a lot, and we've talked about with our, our Bloomberg listeners and audience, about how China is on this long-term initiative yep. to become kind of a tech giant. Right. It's called Made in China 2025. It was launched in 2015. And across almost any kind of high-tech product you can think of, from electric vehicles to batteries to supercomputers and artificial intelligence. And and they are methodically subsidizing these industries. So when we had that delegation from uh, the U.S. in the beginning of May uh, to China, one of the requests or demands was you have to stop subsidizing these industries because it's not a level playing field. So And China got right on it, right? Uh, they shut yeah. it down. So China said, oh, fine, you got it. No, <laughs> no, actually happen. not going to happen. And if there was any inkling that they might do it, I think that's been erased after the ZTE thing because it's made them probably, I would guess, more determined than ever to gain more self-sufficiency. So the risk is, and as you mentioned, and when this – term Chimerica was coined about a decade or so ago. It wasn't great to begin with, this China-U.S. relationship, kind of flawed then, still flawed. In different ways, yeah. And, I mean, if China decides to go it alone, what then? Who gets um, hurt? Well, first of all, if you're just thinking about it from pure economics, it doesn't make sense for countries to be self, to have to develop everything for themselves, you know. That's what free trade is all about. It's the same way in a family. One person, you know, repairs the uh, doorways and the other person, you know, cleans. The other person, you know, fixes the light bulbs, whatever. Right. You do what you're best at and that's what free trade is about. So why would we deliberately all like have to having to reinvent the wheel and everything? Right. So, you know, as you make this discussion and talk about it, I mean, I think about our audience listening. I always do this to you, but I think about – 
what do we kind of need to pay attention as this kind of conflicted and difficult relationship between the Chinese and U.S. as it continues on? We don't know exactly how all this trade stuff's going to play out, well, that's, ultimately. that's the current concern now. Uh, we have the vice premier of China, the chief economic advisor to Xi, Liu He, in Washington now, met with some congresspeople yesterday, meeting with Trump. Uh, uh, or mm-hmm. meeting with uh, Steve Mnuchin and, and uh, very, various people on his team today. So in the short term, w- what you want to see is any sign that these two countries, despite their vast differences and despite all the flashpoints in the relationship, will somehow be able to come up with a uh, modus operandi, some way to live together. And the world's not big enough to company to encompass two con- two countries that are going to be at each other's throats. We don't want that. Nobody wants that. I also love that you point in here that we kind of need to be smart in, I guess you quote somebody who says, beware of any shiny objects. In other words, oh, yeah. China's saying, sure, go ahead, ship us some you know basic commodity or whatever. We'll yeah. buy it. We'll buy it. But meanwhile, we're going to take over electronics or AI, artificial intelligence. <laughs> right. And w- what we've seen is that China playing a long game. They're very focused on marching up to higher and higher value-added products. Trump seems to have more of a uh, transactional mentality. He wants to get deals done. He wants to show quick progress. And he wants to – he has a big focus on just reducing the size of the trade deficit. Now, a lot of economists would say the trade deficits are kind of a symptom of things. But really, just – just reducing the fever kind of isn't really solving the problem. And as you said, you could you could reduce the trade deficit by China would buy more of its oil or gas from the U.S. versus, say, Canada, maybe buy some more soybeans. Right. Okay, kind of good, but it doesn't really deal with the national competitiveness, which is the ultimate concern. I think it's an important story, and I, I really mean it. Stop what you're doing. Buy the magazine. Check out the website because you should read the story. Peter Coy, thank you so much. Thank Economics you. editor at Bloomberg Businessweek in our New York studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. Abe Despande back with us, founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors in our Bloomberg 1130 studio uh, here in New York. I got to start with emerging markets. You and I were talking before we got going. Um, there's more and more research coming out. There's concerns. Carmen Reinhart um, saying some stuff uh, this week, uh, making everybody a little bit nervous, maybe liking it, hearkening it back to like 2008 and that crisis. Um, mm-hmm. What's your take? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I saw the same um, that same set of data that that she was referring to. Yeah. And, and you do see parallels with with uh, pre financial crisis kind of levels of of, of debt and, and the unsustainable. She says worse, worse oh, than the 08 crisis. Yeah, kind of close to even. Yeah. Asian financial crisis, mm-hmm. their financial crisis, which is in the late 90s. Um, I, I'm going company by company. I don't quite see that. I mean, I do see extended levels of, of uh, parent level debt uh, leverage um, in certain cases, but not like a systematic thing. Um, I'm, I, my concern is more that if there is some sort of surprise, there's not a lot of margin of safety in many of these um, emerging market uh, countries or, or companies. 
um, you can look at the right. So if the bottom starts to fall out, boom. There's there's not mu- yeah. yeah there's not, not not much of a margin of safety just in case. And you know you do have these leading indicators. You know they've never fared particularly well when the dollar was really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know when U.S. interest rates are are moving up. Um, you know, there every bear market in the past in the United States has been preceded by a Fed rate hike cycle, um, and that contagion effect into the emerging markets is really difficult to contain. Um, so, you know, it, I think that there, on balance, there's some there's some risk in the emerging markets that that you should be aware of. I feel like too, right? It's smart to kind of take a step back and look at the big picture in that the run up that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Over the last few years, whether it's emerging markets or developed markets, and mm-hmm. you've got to expect a little bit of a breather. Yeah, the, I think f- from 2016 to the beginning of this year, the emerging markets had doubled in price, essentially. If you right. look at the MSCI Emerging Market Index, for instance, um, that was from a depressed level. This is, you know, partly the, there's a parallel to the commodity um, cycles in, in, like, you know, when oil goes down, commodity prices go down. Typically, the economies of, say, Brazil uh, suffer uh, in tangent. So, um, you know, you, you can – you know, that doesn't exist yet. Like, I mean, the, yeah. the, the precursors of a decline or a, a major fall have, don't, uh, aren't in place yet, although the conditions under which they would suffer do. In other words, the, the, the indebtedness of the, some, of, some of these companies is it hard to, Is it hard to, pick, to predict, Abe, at this point whether or not those conditions – like you said, if it happens, then the stuff that's underneath <laughs> – you know, would mean that we could see a lot of fallouts, particularly in emerging markets. Do you think we get to that point? It's possible. I mean, yeah. um, I'd just keep my eye on, on um, you know, oil, for instance. I mean, you know, yeah. p- it, the price of oil is obviously everyone, it's, in, it's kind of top number one he- headline at $80 a barrel, roughly, well, depending on what you're looking at. Right. Um, but, you know, gas prices are up 15, 20, 25 percent, depends on where you live in this country. Um, you know, fully offsetting the tax benefits from the tax cut that we just got. So, you know, there there could be a, a a a dampening effect on economic activity here, which could have then a contagion effect on on commodity prices and also um, what happens in emerging markets. At the same time, it's kind of interesting, right? When you look at retail numbers, right? They actually came in pretty good. I mm-hmm. mean, people are out there still feeling confident, uh, yeah, despite that, those higher a, gas prices. That, that's I think those are coincident um, indicators and yeah. co- coincident numbers. And I'm I'm looking more prospectively what could potentially happen, but. Talk to me a little bit about some names because I love getting into this with you. Um, and I want to go right, first of all, to Tapestry that you like it. This is the former sure. coach. Yeah. I still don't quite get the name, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, um, tell me what it is that you find interesting in this name. Is it that because it was beat up a little bit? Yeah, maybe Tapestry is not a great Sorry. name for it. Maybe it should be you know, <laughs> wet, wet Blanket or something at this point. But it's been it, – they're trying to create a um, an American – um, version of like a, a, a LVMH or an, a Richemont, um, you know, a, something with a core brand, right? Surrounded by these little pearls of, of value in in other smaller brands, right? And um, so with Coach, originally that was called Coach, and then they purchased Kate, uh, well Stuart Weitzman, with the, which is a shoe uh, company, and then right. they bought uh, Kate Spade. Um, I almost said Kate Moss, but no, Kate Spade. <laughs> um, you know, last year, so they're going through this transition of of um, right-sizing what was wrong with some of the parts of Kate Spade. They were very proportionally um, driven. Right. And that transition is is kind of, uh, you know, it's uh, creating a lot of waves in the, in the, in the, in the earnings. Uh, you know, there's a lot of noise in the earnings that they're But they're you reporting. like what they're doing. And, and this is sometimes where I feel like we as um, folks in the business news and stuff, we kind of need to sometimes give a company some time mm-hmm. to kind of maybe write itself. Yeah. I mean, this is where... Our 
at Centerstone, you know, we have a very long time horizon. And so if we're going to invest in the tapestry. We're going to look through this period, assuming that, and, you know, this is where we give management a lot of credit here, or yeah. giving them a lot of credit. Uh, prospectively to to write the ship, but that once you get through it, you have a business that generates a lot of cash flow and which currently trades at forty three or whatever dollars forty four forty seven right now yeah forty four forty five dollars yeah um, trades at a, substan- a substantial discount to say what um, you know, it should tra- trade at. So having said that, when the stock came out and um, it came out, I guess with their same store sales and their I guess was it recent earnings mm-hmm. and there was disappointment. Appointment and tapestry shares were down like fourteen percent. Mm-hmm. Is that when you entered, or did you add? Uh, we had we had owned it before. Keeping in mind the previous earnings report, they beat and the stock went up ten percent. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it, there's a, a bit yeah. of like you know heckle and jide with the jive, uh, heckle and Jekyll, Jekyll and, and Hyde. Hyde. Thank I like you heckle very and jide too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with with the market when it comes to many stocks, but in, in tapestries in particular, just you know, there just needs to be you need to have a little bit more patience. You know, they're trying to build something from scratch here, right? And I think it just reminds us, and we talk about this about you know, often people say long term perspective, look at the fundamentals, look what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to run, All right. but come back. Fun to have you, Abe Deshpande, founder and chief investment officer at St- Centerstone Investors, in our New York studio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 